TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Suzanne Simard with David Haskell, Finding the Mother Tree. A small bookstore in Point Reyes Station, a coastal town in West Marin, California, was the first to invite Suzanne Simard for a conversation. Three days earlier, on May 4, 2021, her book had been published, Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest, has already become a bestseller. Point Reyes Books is located on State Route 1, next door to the Bovine Bakery and across from Toby's Feed Barn. They are supplying the cattle ranches around town. The population count for Point Reyes Station is 288, but over a thousand people participated on the Zoom book release hosted by David Haskell. He is professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South and author of The Forest Unseen and Essays, Op-Eds, and Poetry. Point Ways Books called Suzanne Simard a pioneer of plant communication and intelligence, much like Rachel Carson. Simard, they say, writes in inspiring and accessible ways how trees, living side by side for hundreds of years, have evolved, how they perceive one another, learn and adapt their behaviors, recognize neighbors, and remember the past. How they have agency about the future, elicit warnings and mount defenses, cooperate and compete with one another with sophistication, all characteristics ascribed only to human intelligence, traits that are the essence of civil societies. And at the center of it all stand the mother trees, the mysterious, powerful forces that connect and sustain the others that surround them. Here's David Haskell starting off the conversation. One of the marvelous things in your book is you show how diverse these connections are. It's not just that trees are connected by fungi and that's the end of the story. Every tree has its own character. There are hundreds of different fungi in the soil, each of which has its own season, its own way of connecting with trees. Some of them don't connect with, with trees really at all. They're connecting with grasses and, and other plants. And, and you say that then that this diversity matters. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you un, uh, unpack that and give us a little exposition of some of the diverse ways that trees and fungi are interacting with one another in the forest and, and why that matters for, for, for well-being? Yeah, well, that connection, the connection between the trees and the fungi, there's symbiosis, um, the trees interacting with trees, connecting to each other in myriad ways, not just f- through fungal networks, but through the air, through microbial networks, you know, from one bird moving to flying to a tree and using the nest of another bird. All of that is about connection. And, you know, we as people, we're connected as well. And I grew up connected to the forest. I grew up in the forest. I was just a kid of the of the forest. And I grew up in the old growth forest of British Columbia. So that is what I knew. And that was my home. And so that's my foundation of inquiry, how I grew up in this world and understanding my place in, 
in this forest as just one of the forest. That's what really led me to ask the questions that I did about connections in the wild, because I I saw in forestry, which has got a long ways to go to improve its practices. Um, forestry is about, you know, the practice of forestry is often about disconnecting all those parts. It's about clear-cut harvesting and planting of trees and brushing out plants that they, we don't want. And even, you know, in the process, killing a lot of these fungi and bacteria and all the creatures, that diversity you talk about that makes up the forest. And yes, including, you know, the fungi you talked about, all the myriad of species of fungi. It's true in an old growth forest, there are literally hundreds of of fungi associated even with a single tree. And they all do something different. They have a niche, a niche where they occupy different layers of the soil, they bring up nutrients, and then they can connect trees together, whether the same species or even different species. And that connection provides not just wholeness in the forest, but avenues for actual communication. And so, yes, these trees are communicating all the time through these connections, but not just through the below ground ones, but above ground as well. And the important thing here is that we understand these connections. We all are evolved from ultimately from plants and eukaryotic organisms that move from the ocean to the land. We know in our hearts and our souls that connection is important. And my guess is that anybody who's been in the forest and probably everybody here has and loves trees that you know you know, when you're in the forest, that these connections are absolutely essential to the forest and to us too. Yeah. The way that through the book, you unfold piece by piece, the story of interconnection and how your scientific work and the scientific work of your, your colleagues and collaborators has revealed step by step the, the complexity of, of this connection. I'm wondering if we could take a, a sort of specific imaginative example to, to get to get into that. I'm imagining walking through the through the old growth forests of, of British Columbia, maybe hearing a very thrush, smelling the, the damp leaf litter and the, the understory. And there, there in front of us is is just a magnificent Douglas fir. It's, it's a huge tree, maybe 500, maybe a thousand years old. Mm -hmm. And my untutored human senses would would be impressed by the magnificent size of this tree. But you take that 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 understanding of the tree much deeper. And in fact, you call these trees the mother trees, the great giants, uh, the elders of, of the forest. What should I understand about the role of that tree? Yeah, so I'm not the first person to have studied these old trees, but here's what I've learned that adds to that great, you know, growing body of knowledge of the importance of old trees, of elders in our forest. What I've worked on is what's going on in the soil and below ground. So these immense trees, you're right, they can they can live to a thousand years old, some of the oldest Douglas firs. And they're huge, right? They can be 50 or more meters tall. And that's in Canada, where it's kind of cold up there, um, up here. <laughs> and um, but below ground, what we know now in studying these trees is there's just as much below ground in terms of biomass, like think mm -hmm. of that, as there is above ground. It's like there's a whole tree below ground that you see above ground of the same amount. And so there's all this energy in the crown of those trees, the photosynthetic energy that is taking light and converting it to photosynthetic chemical energy. And a lot of that, 50% of it, ends up in the soil. And it feeds the mycorrhizas of which, like you said, there are hundreds of species, even on a single tree. In Douglas fir alone, there are thousands of species of mycorrhizal fungi that associate with this tree. And a mycorrhiza is that symbiotic 
helper kind of fungus where the fungus grows through the soil, picks up nutrients and water and brings it back to the, the Douglas fir, which provides photosynthate in this kind of market exchange. Like it's a trading system. And there are all these different species, they have different niches. That means that they have different roles in the ecosystem. So some of those fungi um, are big, thick, fat ones that are really good at forming a pipeline connecting to a neighboring tree and sending water or anything dissolved in water, like nitrogen or amino acids dissolved in water, or messages, information about, you know, the relationship with their neighboring trees, whether they're under stress, whether they're healthy. Other fungi are little fine, fine ones, and they'll go into the little tiny pores in the soil where the soil uh, solution is, and that soil solution is full of ammonium and um, nitrates and phosphorus and all these goodies that the, that the tree needs. And the, the fungus grows into those pores and grabs that, that those nutrients. And it actually wraps itself also around the soil particles and that, that helps them glue them together and create even more soil structure, more pores to hold even more of these nutrients. And still others are deeper soil fungi that were, are able to access water that's at subsurface, right, way down deep and bring that water up into the tree and then share it through the network to neighboring trees as well. And so they all have these different roles. That diversity is so important. And as a tree gets older and older, they get more, those fungi get more and more diverse. They're really expressing themselves and associating with so many different fungi and organisms. And they really are the linchpins to the forest. And just as an additional thought on the mother trees, they're having this mothering, nurturing role in the forest because all that connection is also connected to the seedlings growing up around them. And so the, that results in the regeneration of the forest. They actually feed and nurture the seedlings that are falling, you know, the seed falling around them and then growing up in the understory. They're discerning. In, in their choice of which seedlings to, to encourage and, and which to connect with. These trees are making mm -hmm. some sophisticated assessments. Yes, they're very discerning. They're very sophisticated in their relationships, just like we're sophisticated in our relationships, right? We are about our relationships, how we communicate with each other. And trees are the same, right? In the forest, they're connecting with different species of trees. They're connecting with species of the same, you know, other Douglas firs, for example, they can even discern which of those trees are of their own seed, which are their siblings and which are their offspring. And they change their behaviors accordingly. So if, um, if their seedlings need a little help, which they do, if they're growing up in the understory, they're shaded, you know, they don't have many leaves yet or, or needles, they can't photosynthesize even to support themselves. And so they get some of that carbon directly from the old trees that they've germinated into the network of those old trees. Mm -hmm. Also nutrients, phosphorus, um, other things, but also, you know, <laughs> I think importantly too, they're able, when those seeds germinate and the root grows into the soil, they're actually tapping into this ancient legacy. This is a legacy network that has been carried on from generation to generation to generation. And that is the connection. They immediately connect with their, their ancestors, the past, and those ancestors provide them with nourishment, uh, information, wisdom. And that's what they use then to carry on a, and lead a healthy life and become a, a mother tree eventually themselves in the forest. Wonderful. So I'm going back to our imaginary big, big tree. 
once that tree dies mm -hmm. um, or is in the process of dying, because of course for, for trees, and this is something that anyone who spent time in the forest will know that boundary between life and death is, is not quite so clear. Mm -hmm. um, that the tree may fall, but it's, it still will be sprouting. And, and there isn't a particular moment where we can declare the moment. Usually there isn't you know, when we cut with a chainsaw, but even then there are re-sprouts and, and the, the roots are still alive often for many years. What is the process of, of dying in the forest? And what does that teach us about how we might be productive members of the forest community, say, if we want to be harvesting wood or, or in clean water from the forest, meeting human needs as well as honoring the forest. Mm -hmm. What do we need to know about dying? Yeah, I think um, one thing to, to remember is that the forest is a cycle. It's a, it's a cycle of life and it involves birth and death um, and then recovery. And then we are one and part of that cycle of life too. You know, we, arose from the ashes of the earth and we will return to the ashes of the earth, including those forests. So yes, the death in a forest is constant. It goes on all the time. It's part of the natural cycling of nutrients and matter and information. But, you know, in, in a more literal sense, is a, a tree, you know, it gets old. Um, it still is very productive. And this is one of the fallacies, I think, of, or the myths that is that has been dispelled or that we're trying to dispel in science that that trees kind of reach a point where they're they used to be called decadent in the world of mm -hmm. forestry where and that point was where they they no longer are growing faster that they that their rate of growth is kind of leveled off and that's when a forestry says okay it's time to get rid of that tree time to cut it down and turn it into, into two by fours but what we know now is that these trees these old trees are just really getting started right this is when they're actually putting on more and more carbon you know they continue to pack in carbon to their stems and they pack in a loads of carbon below ground. So this is when they're the most valuable in terms of carbon sequestration and storage. And at the same time, this is also when the diversity associated with those trees, they're a scaffolding for much diversity. And I mentioned the soil fungi, that's, you know, as the tree gets older and older, the, the fungi get more diverse, the bird communities get more diverse, the, the nest webs that where birds come and go of different species becomes richer and richer the epiphytes, the mosses, they all increase in richness. The other thing that is going on is that when a tree, it kind of goes, starts to go past that point where there's a point where it starts to spiral down. It goes into this spiral of death, but it's it's a spiral that's a long, long spiral and it's very complex and there's a lot going on, you know, a lot that we don't understand. But for here's one of the things that I've studied in my in my research in my lab is that in stressing trees, and so we've we've uh, experimentally stressed trees and and actually killed trees uh, by pulling off branches and needles and uh, attacking them with worms and pathogens, and we've watched what happens to them. So one of the things that immediately happens is the tree goes into the stress response, just like we do, right? If somebody was to come along and punch you in the face, you would have this immediate reaction and you'd have this emotional reaction and a biochemical reaction. Your face would go red and you want to punch that person back. <laughs> At least I would. And um, so the trees, they kind of go, they go through these biochemical cascades of transformations. So if, a, if there's an herbivore, for example, the jasmonic pathway will be triggered and they'll create all these biochemical uh, intermediary reactions. The salicylic acid pathway will be triggered. It will, they'll start generating salicylic acid. And what these compounds 
enzymes do is defense, they're defense enzymes basically. And that helps to defend the tree. But it turns out that um, at the same time, this tree will pass on these messages, some of these defense signals to neighboring trees, especially if they're of the same species and warn them. And then those trees will upregulate their own defenses, produce more defense enzymes, and they will be healthier in the face of that injury. The other thing that goes on is that these old trees, as they're dying, they don't just send signals. They actually disperse a lot of their carbon, about 40% directly into these neighboring plants. And so instead of that carbon sort of going into the decomposition cycle, where some of it ends up in the atmosphere, some of it ends up feeding the soil food web, some of it, 40%, actually goes directly into neighbors and especially the kin seedlings that are of their own offspring. So this just demonstrates, right, the, the cycle of life. It doesn't end when a tree is mature. That elderly stage, the stage of going through maturity and dying eventually, is absolutely crucial to the recovery of the forest and the health and vitality and adaptability of the future generations of trees. Mm -hmm. so, so the elders are taking on this supremely important role, at least in, in, in some of these forests, which of course, the analogies with uh, human, absolutely uh, how we treat elders in, in human society, of course, is, is very striking there. I'm wondering about the role of the young, though. I mean, how does this, this process of sharing, of, of, of interconnection play out both ways? What are the young giving to, and maybe this is, you know, completely mm -hmm. wrong-headed in asking this question. But what are the young giving to the elder generation mm -hmm. um, as well as, as the, the other way? Well, that's, that's a really great question. So one of the things, you know, we've discovered in the forest in mapping out what these connections look like below ground is that these old trees, they're like the keystone, they're the hubs of the forest. They, they are connected to almost everything else. They just have these massive root systems with all these fungi. And they're just like, even from a pure physical point of view, it's hard not to imagine that they would be connected to all else. And yeah. including these youngsters, as you, as you say, and they actually convey and transmit information and energy to these youngsters. So the youngsters, I call them youngsters, the seedlings, they, they get going, right? They, they're able to establish the root system, establish their, their needles and grow up and start to photosynthesize themselves. You could think of, you know, as you grow, as you um, raise your children, it's when they're able to go to school, you know, they can leave mama's apron and, and dad's hand and actually go to school and learn even more from the rest of the forest, the rest of the community. Um, and so eventually, you know, those trees, those seedlings will grow up to become teenagers and then intermediates. And eventually they're the mother trees and the, and the father trees and the elders themselves. And in this process, um, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly seasonal, even years and years, this exchange of information and energy goes back and forth between the elders and the young ones. So in the beginning, like I said, it's mostly one way from the elders to the seedlings, but it doesn't take long before that there's a back and forth going on and within a few years. And, and then as the elders start to pass on and they're sending on their, their energy and wisdom, those young ones are the ones that reap the, the benefits, obviously, but they're also crucial in carrying on the genes of the elders. And the elders, of course, 
in their DNA. And as we know, in our DNA, that is their imperative. That is their legacy. That is their contribution to the next generations. And that is their ultimate goal, really, if if they had a goal, you know, evolutionarily is to have healthy offspring to give back to the the next generations to make sure the next generations are okay. Um, And so yes, they're all working together on this task. And it is a back and forth and it starts almost right away. Mm -hmm. So they are all connected, just like in our own families. Thank you. Yeah, and it was striking how some of this even changes over a season. I mean, but between mm-hmm. elders and youngers, but also uh, yes. between different species that at one in the summer, uh, the flow is one way and in, in the shoulder seasons, if you like the spring and in the fall, the, the flow go, goes another way. So uh, so the, if we were to map this out, the, the number of arrows would just be overwhelming um, and from just one tiny little patch of patch of forest. Yes, it's a, it's a constant back and forth. And that study you just described is actually the transmission of carbon between two different species, mm-hmm. paper birch and Douglas fir, and cedar is also in there. And it does, it changes over the seasons according to who is more replete. Who's got more um, will will provide more to the neighbor who has less. Mm-hmm. It's what we call in, in science, it's a source sink gradient from a purely biochemical point of view, is that those trees that are big and healthy and tall and illuminated and older, um, they have a high photosynthetic rate and they have a lot of sucrose in their needles and their phloem, which is that, you know, that outer ring of of tubes where the sugars go down to the roots. It's very high in concentration. And then the, the seedlings in the understory or a shaded plant or one that's just a different species that doesn't photosynthesize as much mm-hmm. is the recipient of that. That's the sink plant. So it goes from this source sink gradient and that source sink gradient changes over the seedlings, especially between deciduous and coniferous forests where a dis- Citrus trees will be like the, the source in the summer, but in the spring before it's leafed out and in the fall when the leaves start to senesce, those conifers will be the, the source instead mm-hmm. of the sink. Mm-hmm. So it is this back and forth, this yin and yang that's going on even between different species. Right. Right. It encourages us, as you point out, to view the forest not as a collection of individuals, but as a set of, mm-hmm. of relationships and interconnections. Um, I wonder if we could go into some of your interconnections with the forest. One of the things that I really found very moving and inspiring in the book is is the way that you describe going to the forest, not only as a research scientist with with your curiosity and and questions, but as a source of strength and of meaning and wisdom for your own life, both in times of great joy and celebration and also in, in the times of, of profound grief and of life-threatening illness. Mm-hmm. And so, so your, your scientific work took place in, in the context of a much larger, um, more comprehensive, multi-layered relationship with the forest. How does science and spirit, and I don't know if, if you use the word spirit, but the science mm-hmm. and spirit work together in, in your own life and, and i realize that's a, a very big question and and you took 300 pages to, to walk us through some of the answers to that but i'm wondering if you could perhaps give us some some thought potentially for for people who are, who are asking that question about their own lives mm-hmm. is is how do i sort of keep the curiosity the rationality and the analytic mind is is active but all but integrate that mm-hmm. with these other ways of being and these other ways of connecting with the forest mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, we are spiritual beings. There's there's no way, but I think anybody who's a human being will know we are spiritual. That's what makes our lives so rich, right? We're human beings with hearts and souls, and um, and we love our neighbors, our families, and and we depend on them for you know for lifting us up and and helping us through this life, and that that's what brings us so much joy. And also in science, we bring our humanness to science, right? Our own spirituality. And, I, you know, in Western science, we've sort of maybe drifted away from that idea for quite a long time now where, where scientists, Western science has, has tried to separate man from nature or that the feeling that, that the head is different than the body, or, you know, there's a good, another a good analogy that, you know, the mind is superior to the body, that the human is, is superior to nature, or that we should be dominion over nature, that we are the owners of it, that it's there for us. Well, that gets us into a lot of trouble very quickly. And if, if you live your life that way, you quickly understand that it's, it leaves you a pretty big hole in your heart. In my process of scientific endeavor, I have brought my spirit, I can't help but do that, to my research, my history. Yes. My history as a, as a child of the forest and growing up actually in a logging family. And then watching, you know, what the industrial machine was doing to, you know, my forest, our forest, the people's forest was just heartbreaking. And I, I had to, you know, it was not like I started out when I was 20 and say, I'm going to, you know, save the forest. It was more of a journey of, oh my goodness, what's going on? Oh my goodness, I, I, I've got to figure this out. Oh, what are they doing now? Oh, you know, actually they should, you know, they're, they're, they're severing these connections. It was, it's a really was a journey. It was a mysteries novel just to myself. Um, and ultimately I was able to stumble on through my perseverance, these connections. And it was really, you know, I, that was sort of like the key moment for me is like, this is what we're missing, right? This is where we feel, this is where we feel bad is when, when we become disconnected. And, you know, I think this moment in our history of the pandemic and being isolated and, that we, we we feel this grief and it's not just grief of being alone it's also grief for the pandemic like what is happening to us what is happening to our planet it's grief for our environment because we know that climate change is on us um we're losing species those are all grief stricken things um but you know i found and not just me we as people of this earth, as descendants of those eukaryotic cells that came out of the ocean, as ultimately all Aboriginal in our own sense, know that we are connected to this planet and those connections. And, and I knew this. And when I discovered it, I was like, this is it. This is what we're missing. And this is what this forest industry is not honoring these connections. And I was also able to work with Aboriginal people in my own country in Canada. And then I went, this is it. You know, they have known for so long, thousands and thousands of years, that this connection is what gives us health and vitality and meaning. Um, and so that's, that is where I said, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to reconnect with the forest. We need to get out there, go connect with your trees and your plants, and then fight like hell for these forests, because these are our life support systems. That was Professor Suzanne Simard, author of Finding the Mother Tree. Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. She was recorded on a Zoom call on Friday, May 7, 2021, at Point Reyes Books in a small coastal town in Marin County, California.
She was in conversation with biologist, author, and poet David Haskell. Suzanne Simard was born in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia and grew up in an old-growth forest. She was educated at the University of British Columbia and at Oregon State and is now Professor of Forest Ecology in the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Forestry. The one-hour film of this conversation and more is posted on YouTube. The link can be found on the website of Point Reyes Books. Reyes is spelled R-E-Y-E-S. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening.